You will. Hello, everyone. Uh, if you were paying attention, you will know that that was not, in fact, from the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we've been going through this semester. Uh, so we are taking a break this week uh, to look at a psalm, uh, Psalm 13. Um, so let me get this out of the way. Sweet. All right. Um, like I say, every week at RUF, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And so that means whether you are doing really well uh, or you're doing really poorly, uh, you're welcome here. You're welcome here. The, the Christian life is one where we relate to God based on his kindness, not based on how good we are. All right, well, let me, uh, let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we can get started. Father, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for this time that we can um, get together and we can study, um, we can um, rest, uh, we can ask questions of who you are uh, and what that might mean for us. I just pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes as we consider this psalm, um, that you would help us to see uh, who you are clearly, uh, that you would help us to see your great love for us. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so I recently came, a song, came across a song uh, by Noah Cyrus. Anybody? Noah Cyrus? Yeah? Yeah? Uh, called Sadness. Um, and it's just kind of telling the story about a rough time in her life. Uh, and essentially at the beginning of the song, it just kind of notes that things are sad. Uh, she's been going to therapy for like three years, she says, and it just doesn't seem like things are improving. And so she has this solution uh, of what she's going to do with her sadness. After all this time of wrestling and things just not getting better, uh, she comes up with this idea that she's going to be friends with her sadness. Uh, the, the hook of the song says, so I'm trying to be friends with my sadness. I'm having drinks with my fears and bad habits. Uh, this song by Noah Cyrus, it's a song that is acknowledging a sad reality, and it's trying to give us kind of a clue as to what to do with that. So the psalm that we're looking at tonight is actually the same thing. Uh, psalm 13 is a song that acknowledges our sadness and it shows us what to do with it. Uh, so as we look at this passage tonight, Psalm 13, we're going to be asking the question, what do we do with our sadness? What do we do with our sadness? And if you're unfamiliar with the Psalms, uh, the Psalms were kind of the Old Testament hymn book, like the songs that we just sang. Uh, in the Old Testament, the songs they would have sang were Psalms. Uh, they would have been sung together in the context of worship. And the psalms are kind of unique. They're different from our songs in that at least about half of them were what's called a lament, a lament, uh, which is just kind of an ancient way of saying a really sad song. A lament is a song that uh, lays a troubled situation before God, and it asks him for help. And so Psalm 13 is kind of one of the, the quintessential laments. So as we look at this psalm, we're going to ask the question again, what do we do with our sadness we're going to see three things that we can do with our sadness. Uh, first thing we can do, we can name it. Second, we can cry out for help. And third, we can move forward and trust. So we can name our sadness, we can cry out for help, or, and we can move forward and trust. So first thing we see here, uh, what do we do with our sadness? We can name it. So if you would, look with me to the first verse here. Uh, this psalm begins with kind of a, a loud, angsty cry. It says, how long? In fact, it says it four times uh, at the beginning of this psalm. How long, how long, how long, how long? Uh, in the original language, it, it's something like uh, the psalmist is saying, until when? Like, how long is this going to last? 
Uh, it's a little bit like if you were ever on a road trip with your parents and you just kind of ask the question, are we there yet? Like it's, this, is, this is what the psalmist, this is what David is saying to God. Are we there yet? How long is this going to go on? And he expresses kind of this overwhelming sadness. And it's a sadness that he feels in three directions. Three directions. Uh, we see first, the, the first direction is upward. See this in verse one. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Uh, this is a sadness in his relationship with God. He feels as if the Lord, the covenant God in the Old Testament, he feels as if the Lord has forgotten him. And there's irony in that, right? The name Lord, it means covenant God. It means a God who is faithful to his promises. And he's expressing this covenant God, it feels like he's forgotten me. How long? How long will you hide your face from me? Uh, It's like this language, it almost reminds me... uh, this is completely hypothetical, but I've heard sometimes when people are married, they will say things to their spouse like, do you even respect me? Right? Do you even love me? You know, like when you're in the middle of an argument. It's, this is what it feels like David is doing here. He's naming this discord in his relationship with God. So this is kind of an upward sadness, but we see in verse 2 an inward sadness. It says, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day. Uh, What he's saying here is, how long am I going to have to be my own counselor? How long am I going to have to sit with these sad feelings that I'm having? And just, they, they just sit inside me and fester. He's experiencing intense loneliness, anxiety, despair. And some of you I know know what that feels like. I think all of us know what that feels like sometimes, but for others of us, this is more of a chronic experience to have this sort of sadness sitting inside your heart all the day. So that's inward sadness. But then finally, in, in, at the end of verse 2, there's this outward sadness. It says, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Uh, and so the writer of this psalm is King David, the, the great king in Old Testament Israel. He would have had a lot of enemies. Uh, and there are psalms that, where he talks about specific instances in his life uh, where enemies had kind of followed him. But this one is ambiguous. And I think that's intentional, because remember what this is. This is a song that would have been sung in in public gathered worship. What David is doing here is inviting us to take up his words as our own. So you might not have the the literal enemies uh, that King David was talking about, but I'm sure that you have enemies. I mean, we talked about this last week in large group, right? There are people who mean us harm. Uh, Even our own selves sometimes can be our own worst enemy. So what David is doing here in this first section, he's giving kind of this, expressing this upward sadness. His relationship with God feels terrible. This inward sadness, he feels like garbage. This outward sadness, it looks like the bad guys are winning. Like it's from every direction. So what David is doing here is he's naming this sort of sadness. He's naming it. He's just calling it what it is before God. He's calling it like he sees it. He's saying, God, where are you? My heart is broken. My enemies are winning. And I think in doing this, he's inviting us to do the same. And I just want to take a second to to note the fact. So David in the Old Testament is often referred to as the man after God's own heart. Uh, He was the man, if there's anyone who gets it, it's him. 
and he felt things like this. So I don't know where you're at tonight, but I know many of you have experienced a lot of sadness. And the unfortunate reality is that sometimes in Christian circles, we can make it seem like you're sad because you just don't love God enough. And I just want to say, like, if David didn't love God enough, there's not hope for anyone. Okay? This is a, this is a man of God who, who loves God and knows him deeply, and yet he experienced this. So if you're going through this, I, I think this is somewhat close to the normal Christian experience. This doesn't mean you're terrible. I think that's in part what this psalm is here for. So David is naming his sadness, and he's inviting us to do the same. Uh, But maybe you're sitting there, and you're kind of wondering, what's the point? Like, what's the point about, like, talking about the sad things going on in my heart? Uh, What difference is it going to make? Why would I even do that? Um, I wonder if we use the same line of thinking in our other relationships. I don't know if you are dating someone or if you have a really close friend, uh, but when there's some sort of disagreement, when there's some sort of relational discord in a close relationship, uh, we don't think this way. We don't think, why would I even say anything about that? No matter what I say, it's not going to get better. It's not going to change anything. You see, we enter into arguments with, uh, with spouses, with friends, uh, with significant others because we love them. You see, we tell them when we feel missed by them. You see, a good relationship isn't the absence of conflict. See, good relationships are are made in repair. They're not made in in running away from conflict. See, if you want intimacy in a relationship with someone, the way forward is to acknowledge the problems. You have to acknowledge what's wrong. You have to tell them where you're at. You have to tell them where you feel missed if you want to have any sort of close relationship. You see, to name what's actually going on in a relationship is a sign of intimacy. And what we see here from David is that it's not any different in our relationship with the Lord. To name what's going on is a sign of intimacy. See, intimacy with God is not refusing to talk about our sadness. It's boldly bringing our sadness before him. It's telling him what's going on. But even as I say this, uh, as some of us may still be resistant to talking about this sort of thing. I mean, there's kind of the recurring voice of, what's the point of talking about it, right? Like, it's not going to change anything. And I think that kind of betrays maybe something going on in our hearts. It kind of betrays that we think we know what we need. Uh, What if what you need most deeply is not a change of circumstance? What if what you need most deeply is a change of heart? What if what you need most deeply is to be honest about where you're at before God and to hear yourself say out loud what you're going through? Like, have you ever just like been caught off guard and said something out loud and then just realized, oh my gosh, that was inside of me. (laughs) I didn't realize I felt that way until I finally said it. See, what we need often is is a deep, uh, a, a deep awareness of what's going on inside of us. And the way to do that is by naming that before God. And so I think just, I just want to ask, uh, when we see this psalm where it says, how long, right? That's, it's a vulnerable question on some level. I want to ask, where in your life are you avoiding asking that question? Where in your life are you avoiding acknowledging the pain that you're feeling? Where in your life are you avoiding bringing that to God? 
What would it look like for you, even in small ways, to step into that? To acknowledge the pain you feel and to say, how long? So that's some of us, but I think others of us maybe are thinking kind of on the opposite side. Uh, We might think something like, well, God is so good, so I don't need to talk about sad things. Like God's been so kind to me, it, it almost feels bad to talk about sad things, right? I think this is, uh, we kind of want to rush to, like when you're reading through this psalm, uh, verse 6, you know, it says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. For some of us, we love that verse, but we hate the rest of this psalm. Like we hate going into the darkness. I'd rather rush to the happy part. Uh, The counselor Dan Allender says it this way. He says, our refusal to embrace our sadness is often an attempt to escape the agony of childbirth and build up the illusion of a safe world. It is an attempt to deal with a God who does not relieve our pain. The reality is often that God does not relieve our pain. And I know some of you know that. Some of you are dealing with pain that just won't go away. What if in that pain God is inviting you to name that before him? What if God is so good that he is okay with you telling him that you don't feel cared for by him? What if he's that good? What if God doesn't need you to hide what you're going through? What if instead God comes to you and he sits with you in the sadness? So that's the first thing we can do with our sadness. We're invited to name it. But second, in verses 3 and 4, we see another thing that we're invited to do here. Uh, We can cry out for help. We can cry out for help. Uh, So we see in verse 3, David says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Uh, It's as if he's saying, Look at me. Look at me. If the problem in the first part was, You're hiding your face from me. Here, he directly asks, I want you to look at me. Because the problem is that you're not looking at me. I want you to look right at me. Uh, The original language here, the the words here, like consider and answer, those are imperatives. Like he is saying, Lord, consider me. Answer me. Look at me. You see, he knows the only solution for feeling forgotten by God is God remembering him. And so he boldly asks for it. And then later in the verse, he says, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. It's as if he's saying, I need you to meet me in my sorrow, in my inward anguish and sadness, and give me light. Give me light. Shine light in the darkness in my heart. And then in verse 4, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. It's as if he's arguing with God, even in this section. He's essentially saying, God, if you don't do something about this, I'm going to look bad. And by extension, you're going to look bad because you said you care for me. So this is this bold section, bold demanding of God. He says to God, look at me, comfort me, be faithful to me. How does it hit you, like, to think about talking to God that way? Can you imagine what that would be like? If you're anything like me, it makes makes me really uncomfortable. (laughs) Like, it seems inappropriate to talk to God that way. 
Uh, In the New Testament, Jesus tells a story of a man who makes a bold request like this uh, in Luke chapter 11. Uh, So Jesus tells the story of a man who has a friend who arrives at his house after a long journey, and he ends up getting there after midnight, so it would have been pitch black. Uh, And in that culture, it was customary when someone comes in that you meet them and that you give them some food. And so this man just has this guy who's come in, he's tired, he's hungry, and he realizes he doesn't have any food to give his friend who just arrived at his house. So what does the man do? The man goes over to his neighbor in the middle of the night and starts knocking at his door because he, needs to, he wants to ask him for bread because it's the, it's the height of shame to have a guest in your house and not have anything to give them. So he goes and asks his neighbor. And you can imagine the neighbor, I mean, it's midnight. Uh, in this era, people would have like slept in one room with their entire family. So you can imagine the door is being knocked on. He's like, man, I've got kids in here. Like, go away. Like, they're getting the sleep cycles all messed up, and he knows that it's just going to be all day the next day. Like, this, his neighbor is ruining his life, basically. And he, but the guy keeps banging on his door, and finally the neighbor gives in and gives him some bread. Uh, and if you're anything like me, this sort of uh, behavior is like your worst nightmare, right? Like, this is what I want to stay away from so much. This is why I don't ask people for things, because I'm like, I don't want to be that guy. No one wants to be that guy. So there's, there's something in, in me, and I think in a lot of us, that we, wanna, we instinctively want to avoid being like this. But the problem is that Jesus, when he's telling this story, after he tells this story, he goes on to say that this man's persistence in knocking and asking is exactly how we should be praying for our own needs. He lifts this up as a good model of what it looks like to relate to God, to make this sort of bold request and demand. Uh, Jesus lifts up this annoying, persistent knocker as a model for how we're supposed to relate to God. How does that hit you? I think some of us might still think that praying in this way is annoying to God. It's annoying for us to say these sorts of things to God. And I, I hear you. I hear you. But I wonder where you got that idea. Because what we're looking at here is, is the Bible. We're looking at the Psalms, which are the prayer book. Like, this is how God's people have learned to sing. This is how God's people have learned to pray. And somehow we still have this idea that we can't pray like this. We can't ask things of God. See, I think how we respond to the idea of making bold requests of God, it shows who we think God is. Here's what I mean by this. If we're annoyed by this sort of behavior... In, in this psalm we're looking at, if, we, if this annoys us, we probably think that God is annoyed by us. If this sort of behavior angers us, we probably think that God is angered by our needs. But what we see in Scripture is not a God who is annoyed with us, not a God who is angered by our needs, but a God who describes himself as Father. A God who describes himself as Father, who invites us to cry out to him. A God who doesn't expect us even to know what to do, uh, but a God who is eager to run to us and give us what we need. You see, the good news we see here is that we're invited to cry out to God for help. We can ask for exactly what we need. We don't have to beat around the bush. We can acknowledge our sadness, and we can go right to the source and ask for directly what we need. So we can cry out to God for help 
Uh, but third and finally, we can move forward in trust. So thus far, we've seen that we can name our sadness. We can call it what it is. Uh, we can cry out for God's help. We can ask. But then finally, we see a model for moving forward in trust. Uh, if you would look with me to verses 5 and 6. It says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So even though everything in verses 1 through 4 is true, even though all of that sadness is there, we still see the psalm ending this way. We see a resolution to trust in who God is. And we have no indication that the situation has actually changed. We have no indication. But we do see a pretty dramatic change in tone. How do you respond to that change in tone? Things are terrible, and then all of a sudden we're trusting in God. We're moving forward trusting in God. I think for some of us, this sort of transition is extremely difficult. The idea of acknowledging how bad something really is, and then somehow being okay. Like, how in the world could I feel what we see in verses 1 through 4, like upward, inward, outward sadness, and then somehow say what David just said in verses 5 and 6? How can I possibly trust when God feels absent? How can I do that? But then for others of us, when we get to verses 5 and 6, where it talks about singing to the Lord and hallelujah and it's all going to be okay, uh, this is the only part of the psalm that we're actually comfortable with. Some of us would rather skip naming and crying out and just focus on how good God is. We'd rather uh, have the power of positive thinking, right? We don't want to dwell too much on what's negative. But I think what we see in this psalm is that the joy at the end, the joy that we see in verses 5 and 6, it's not possible without engaging the sadness that we see at the beginning. You see, the Christian story is, is through sadness, joy. Through death, resurrection. It's not stepping around sadness. It's not stepping around death. It's going right through it. See, the Christian hope, it, there's a lot of audacity in that. <laughs> to look death straight in the face and say, where is your sting? To look sadness straight in the face and say, I know that there's joy on the other side of this. But that's the Christian hope. Uh, one of my seminary professors, a guy named Zach Eswine, says, it is an act of faith and wisdom to be sad about sad things. <laughs> it is an act of faith and wisdom to be sad about sad things. The reality is that we don't live in a perfect world, and sometimes the godly response to the world around you is to be sad. Like Jesus himself was sad, and he was perfect. It's an act of faith and wisdom to be sad about sad things. And I think sadness is also, it's part of the Christian story. Uh, coming up in the spring, we're going to be celebrating things like Lent, uh, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday. Uh, these are sad parts of the Christian year. <laughs> They're not happy. Uh, we sit in our sadness and we eagerly anticipate the joy of Easter Sunday. You see, death and resurrection, they're inherent parts of the Christian story. Every week at RUF, we get together and we worship a man who was known as a man of sorrows, who was well acquainted with grief. See, if you want to avoid sadness, then I don't think you should be a Christian. 
We don't avoid sadness. We go through it. See, it's precisely through naming our sadness and crying out to God that we are enabled to move forward in trust. Our sadness, in a paradoxical way, it actually brings us closer to Jesus and grows our faith. Brings us closer to Jesus and grows our faith. You see, in experiencing our sadness, we come to know Jesus. Jesus, the man of sorrows who is well acquainted with grief. Uh, Jesus experienced the sadness of Psalm 13 to the uttermost. He knew what it was like for God to forget him. He actually knew what that felt like. He knew what it was like to be utterly alone in his emotional distress. He knew what it was like to have his enemies gloating over him. And as we enter into our own sadness, we can know even more the heart of Jesus. We can understand the the depth of what Jesus was willing to go to for us. We can understand the heart of one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, made himself nothing, so he could have us. See, in in our sadness, we can know our servant king better. But even more in Jesus, we can see a preview of the end of our sadness. See, in the story of Jesus' sadness, we can, we can get a taste of how our sadness is going to end. Because Jesus' sadness, what he suffered, ended in glory. The glory of resurrection. The glory of lost and ruined sinners being brought home. The glory of a restored creation. The glory of everything sad coming untrue. And see, when we look at Jesus' death and resurrection, it's a preview of our own death and resurrection. It's a preview of what's to come. See, by faith in Christ, we're united to him so that what's true of him becomes true of us, including the fact that he walked out of a grave. That's the Christian hope. And as we find companionship with Jesus in our sadness, we can rejoice and long for the day that we will experience the fullness of resurrection joy. You see, if God can bring joy out of the saddest thing in the world, which is the perfect man being put to death unjustly, what sadness can't he redeem? If somehow there was was joy and life brought out of Jesus' suffering, what sadness in your life can't he redeem? Let's pray. Praise him.